You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Hello, my name is Leslie Dunn. Oh, I need my glasses. (laughs) That's where I'm at. I'll be reading Psalm 134 and Romans 6, 15 through 23. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. A song of ascents, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from heaven, he who made heaven and earth. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slave to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Thanks, Thanks, Leslie. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for bringing Eddie to us here today and uh, preparing him as he is delivering this message to us today. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be with him, fill him for this task, and be with us as we are eager to receive what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. How is everyone doing? Good, good. Um, As is true of all the topics during the series, I cannot possibly cover in 45, 50 minutes the topic on slavery. So I do have recommendations for books, and I'll be happy to share with you what what, uh, those books might be uh, after the service. But my hope today is to provide us with a 
biblical perspective on how to understand the issue of slavery, race-based slavery, and um, why it is that, as, as we have heard the scripture read, why there are so many references to Christians as being slaves of Christ and what that means. So that is my hope. Okay? All right. Why, why do we need to talk about slavery in 2022? It's been over 157 years, I think, since the emancipation. Why do we need to talk about slavery this morning? I suggest that we need to talk about it because it is a gospel of reconciliation issue that still impacts the body of Christ. To this day, Satan has used this one issue to keep us divided by race for centuries such that we do not display the new creation power of the gospel that we proclaim. When it comes to the issue of racial reconciliation, we have very little credibility in this country. We don't see a lot of organizations coming to us and saying, please help us, teach us how to be reconciled because we're having a hard time. They're not coming to the church for that because if you do not know, the church is one of the, still one of the most racially segregated major institutions in this country. So we don't display the power of the gospel that we proclaim. And also I say, just as true of every sin that we commit, Satan has wounded and broken all of us through the sin of racism. What I mean by that is, it's not only the African Americans that have been hurt, wounded, and devastated by the sin of racism, but it has also wounded and broken white Americans and white Christians. We can, we can get into that perhaps after, uh, during the Q&A session, Q&R session, but if you just stop to think about why is it that so many Christians, even today, to this day, get so defensive, angry, frustrated, indifferent, and unengaged when it comes to racial issues. And I suggest that it is because we are all racially broken by the sin of racism. The good news is that Jesus still loves his church. Amen? Amen? And he is more than able to heal and reconcile us and renew us so that we can be the witnesses that he has saved us to be and be the multi-ethnic family that we are saved to be. So let's, I, I, I want us to dive right in um, and unpack this topic of doesn't Christianity condones slavery. And I, I want to ask, I want us to explore three main questions to deal with this topic. Okay? 
So the first question I would like us to explore is, why is slavery in the Bible in the first place? Secondly, we'll look at why does Jesus enter our world as the slave of all? And then lastly, we will look at why are Christians metaphorically called slaves of Christ? What does it mean? Why? Okay, so first, why is Christianity, I mean, why is slavery in the Bible? Hmm. To understand the topic of slavery biblically, not politically, not socially, but biblically, we have to understand God's purpose of servanthood. In other words, did God intend our acts of service to be an end in and of itself? Or did God intend our acts of service to be a means to an end, as an expression of some greater good, or a tangible way for us to know his character? And the clear biblical answer is, that our acts of service to others was and is meant to be a concrete expression of love, a concrete expression of God's love. As one author put it, the essence of love is humble service. The essence of love is humble service. Now, husbands, when you proposed to your future wife, why did you get on one knee? Hopefully you did. Okay, why did you get on your knee? Because built into love is this attitude of humble service. Okay? So we see Jesus asking, Peter, Peter, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then what does Jesus say? Then feed my sheep. Serve my people. Love and service always goes hand in hand in the, in the Bible. So let's, let's look at, um, we'll look at just three verses, okay? So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him? To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. How do you express that you love God? It says, you serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay? It's even more clear in the Gospel of John. Okay? John chapter 13. This is the night that Jesus is betrayed by his disciples. Okay, this Thursday night before Good Friday. It says, John, John writes, having, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, which, which means, I believe, I suggest, it means both he loved his disciple to the very last day of his earthly life, as well as he loved them to the end, meaning in order to fulfill the meaning of love. How did he do that? How did he express that he loved them? John says, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, 
and wrapped a towel around his waist. On the spot, Jesus became a slave. How do we know? Because he began to wash his disciples' feet, which was one of the most humble acts of a slave. And then Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So my point is that God intended and purposed our acts of service to be an expression of love. So far, so good? The question is, what happens? What happens if you reject God's purpose and sever servanthood from love? What happens if you coerce and demand service without love? You get forced labor. You get oppression, exploitation, and slavery. And then, injustice results, suffering, pain, and poverty. Therefore, slavery, race-based slavery, is an evil and a grotesque distortion of God's beauty of loving servanthood. So that's what the Bible teaches us, that it is, it is an evil distortion of servanthood. Okay? And it totally destroys God's purpose and brings ruin to human beings who were meant to image God's love. Okay? So instead of it being an expression of love, it became, servanthood became an expression of power. So the question is, why is slavery in the Bible in the first place? And the Bible gives us a clear answer, and that is we live in a fallen world full of sinners who are capable of establishing institutions and systems of forced labor that benefit some people and oppress other people. Now let's look at Genesis chapter, chapter 1, verse 28. Okay, let's look at what God commanded human beings before the fall. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what's happening here? So having created Adam and Eve in love, God commissions them to lovingly serve him and bless the world as his very first royal priesthood. But notice that God specifically says that they are to subdue and rule over what? the fish, the birds, and all other creatures. Not over human beings, but over God's creation. But after the fall, what happens? We begin to see human beings ruling over and dominating each other. And, 
And that's from Genesis chapter 4 and onwards, that's all we see. And some were conquered and became slaves. Others were poor and became slaves, and, and became slaves to survive. Some gained tremendous power and wealth, while others suffered subjugation and poverty. And so all the scholars agree, those who've studied slavery of all different cultures, they say that slavery became just a, 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 it became a way of life. It was just a, sim, a simply accepted social practice in ancient Near East and the Roman Empire. And there's plenty of books that compare and contrast how how slavery of the ancient Near East and even the Roman Empire was so different than uh, slavery as it was practiced in this country. So there's plenty of books on that. I encourage you to re read those books if you're so interested. But the point that I want to make is that because slavery was such a huge part of this fallen world, God had to address it and regulate their sinful ways and limit the damage, but always with the aim of ending the practice of slavery. Okay, so let's look at one passage in the Old Testament, and then we'll look at another one in the New Testament. Okay, so first, let's look at the heart of the Old Testament regulation about treating fellow uh, Hebrews as slaves. Okay, so Deuteronomy chapter 15 says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. Meaning, make sure... And uh, if you look at the passage closely, you'll be tempted to keep your slave after six years, but don't do that. Let them go. And when you send them off, make sure that you give them plenty of things. Make sure that they have some meat, plenty of meat, load them up with carbs, and give them plenty of wine so that they can celebrate. It says, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to them. You shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. So you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Okay? So at the heart of the Old Testament regulations, we see that they were to care for their slaves as they remembered God's love and care for them. And if they fail to do it, God makes it very clear, if you don't do what I say as far as treating your slaves, then you are sinning before me. Okay, God makes it very clear. Okay? But doesn't the practice of slavery in the Bible condone slavery? Because it never condemns it outright. And it continues on even to the first century. And some people, a lot of people ask, but what about Paul's instructions to slaves to obey, obey their masters? And you find it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians 5. What about those passages? Okay. Now, let's look at one passage that the white 
uh, Christians left out of the slave Bible. Uh, for those of you who were here in week two, our friend Lonnie came and he, he showed us that there was actually a Bible for slaves. And this passage was not in that Bible, and we'll see why. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul remembers he's writing to slaves and owners in the hearing of the entire church. And, and uh, he's writing to address the Corinthian church as the slavery is, was practiced in the first century. Chapter 7, it says, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, he says, listen, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. So two things, two things that we see in this passage. One, slaves were able to gain their freedom. And number two, Paul says he tells him to stop the practice of slavery. And you'll have an opportunity to look at in your community groups, Paul's letter to Philemon, and see what Paul has to say about uh, the practice to a slave owner. So um, hopefully it'll be a fruitful study. But the question is, how can we make sense of slavery in the Bible? Uh, this is from one of the books that I would recommend uh, by a New Testament scholar who is actually a Paul, he is a Pauline scholar named Esau McCauley. And this is what he writes in his book, what's it called, um, Reading While Black. Follow with me here. On the first read, the Bible does not appear to say all that we want it to say in the way we want the Bible to say it. But he says, this is the crucial part. The Bible says more than enough. The story of Christianity does not, on every page, legislate slavery out of, his, out of existence. Nonetheless, the Christian narrative, our core theological principles and our ethical imperatives create a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. In fact, indefensible. The Bible, taken in its entirety, remains a light in a dark and broken world. Does that make sense? The point that I'm trying to make is that God gave us a gospel theology that has the power to bring an end to slavery altogether. There is no other trajectory in the Bible. It is absolutely indefensible. And so... God's people, the idea is that God's people were to work out this gospel theology to bring an end to slavery. And this is precisely what happened in 1830s. Okay, most of you have heard of William Wilberforce in the UK. And there's a, there's a man named William Garrison in the US who were both Christian men among many other Christians who courageously fought to abolish slavery. 
And so the wide move to abolish slavery is a uniquely Christian innovation. And honest um, secular historians and philosophers will tell you that this was a uniquely Christian idea. Okay, let's transition. Let's transition. Okay? If God's word is clear about the sinfulness of slavery, then why did generations of white, Christ, of white Christians in this land continue to condone slavery, then segregation and oppression? The answer is because they themselves were slaves to sin and in desperate need of Jesus. Okay? So question number two. Why does Jesus enter our world as the slave of all? Because God in this way loved the world. Namely, he sent his son to us as the ultimate slave in order to be our payment for sin and deliver us from our slavery to sin and evil and death. Before we get to the good news, let's look at what Paul says about spiritual slavery. Okay? Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So what Paul teaches us here is that not just material or physical things, but Paul says that man-made concepts and ideologies, what he calls elementary principles of the world, these ideologies have power to enslave us and shape the way we live and lead us away from the gospel. So why did white European Americans enslave and segregate and discriminate against African Americans? The answer is because they became enslaved to an evil idea called race in search of meaning and significance in search of an idolatrous identity in racial superiority. A scholar by the name of George Kelsey, who was a graduate of Harvard and Yale, and he, he taught ethics at Drew University back in, 19, in, the, in the 1960s. In 1965, he, he wrote a book, and he gives us these insights about the idolatry, what he calls the idolatry of race. And he was the only scholar of his time that gave us such biblical insight about racism. And this is what he wrote. Racism is a faith. What he means by that is racism begins with a belief in an idea called race. It is a form of idolatry, meaning it has controlling power. 
It is an abortive search for meaning. Namely, the multitudes of men gain their sense of the power of being from their membership or an identity in the superior race. Accordingly, the most deprived white man, culturally and economically, no matter how, how uneducated or how poor, is able to think of himself as better than any N-word. But what about Christians? It makes sense that unbelievers would do that, but what about Christians? And he wrote that the idol of race, not God's word, not the gospel, but the idol of race determined his attitude, his decisions, and action. So they, they were able to, he writes, they were able to justify segregated practices as merely a moral expressions of private preference. And the point that I'm trying to make is that they were, white Christians were so enslaved by sin, they became blind to injustice, deaf to the cries for help, and mute and remain silent when they needed their brothers and sisters to cry for help with them. And they just failed to love their brothers and sisters who were suffering injustice. Uh, in the movie Black Panther, the main character, King T'Challa, he confronts his dad about the past injustices that he has discovered, in which he has learned that his, his, his father killed his own brother, and then he left his nephew to suffer. Uh, he abandons his nephew in, in, in the US, in Oakland, in the inner city projects. And so, if you remember the movie, he asks, why, did you, why didn't you bring the boy home? You are wrong to abandon him. And the father replies, but I chose my people. I chose Wakanda. And the king says, you are wrong. You are all wrong to turn your backs on the rest of the world. I must go back. I must right these wrongs. The question is, how can we in the world right our wrongs? How can a long history of wrongs be made right? The gospel reminds us that it is only possible through the king who becomes the slave of all. Um, one of the things that was... Um, eye-opening for me as I dove into this topic of trying to understand slavery in the Bible is, is how the biblical theme of Jesus being a slave is so prevalent in the New Testament. Um, a New Testament scholar by the name of Murray, Murray Harris, he says, obeying and pleasing the master, this is a service rendered by a slave. Okay? 
obeying and pleasing the master. So these two things are all over the New Testament as, as they describe Jesus. Okay, so let's look at three verses, three different passages. Okay, John chapter 6, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my Father's will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And why would he do that? Chapter 8, he says, I always do what pleases him. So in the Gospels, we see, I want to... Okay, let's look at the next verse, okay? Father, Luke chapter 22. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Okay? Which is an act of a slave, a complete surrender of his will. And Jesus tells us that he does this because he loves his father. He lives to please his father. And most clearly in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Paul, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So why did, why did Jesus become the slave of all? He became the slave of all in order to fulfill God's original purpose of servanthood as well as to pay for the sins for our sins and the and the price of our history of wrongs and injustice mark chapter 10 verse 45 it says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many John chapter 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He became a slave because he loves us. He became a slave and was fully obedient to the Father's will, even dying on the cross in order to please him. So in Christ Jesus, the greatest king became the lowliest slave of all. And the significance of that is, there could not have been a greater act of humility and love. He was the most glorious king, but he laid it all down to forever be a human being. That's a great price. No act it could not have been a greater act of humility and love. Therefore, Jesus was the highest price and the most precious payment for sin. Um, if you look at Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16, we learn about the Day of Atonement. And this was the day when once a year, all the sins of every tribe were forgiven. 
and removed and washed away. And it was, of course, a picture of the cross. Because what happened on the cross? On the cross, all of our individual sins, as well as our corporate sins, and centuries of unjust wrongs were once and for all nailed and washed away because Jesus became our substitute. He stood in our place, took our shame and our guilt, and died so that we would be free. Okay? Now, let's, um, let, me, let me apply this and suggest two things with regards to our past racial sins and our present work of reconciliation, as it primarily applies to white Christians and black Christians. Okay? So let me just suggest uh, two things as a way of application. Because Jesus, once and for all, justly paid for all the racial sins of the past, there is no more condemnation and no more guilt and shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think the tendency culturally is to make white Americans still pay for the sins of the past. But what the Bible teaches us is that Jesus took our place. And he justly paid for all of the sins. And he died for all the injustices that we have committed. Therefore, I suggest to white Christians, I think there is a tendency to minimize what happened in the past. So my suggestion is without minimizing it, can you confess the evil of it and acknowledge the injustice that took place and lament and grieve with our African-American brothers and sisters and their community? Because I believe if you do that, if you sincerely confess and grieve with them, that it can begin to heal not only your soul, but those who have been deeply, deeply wounded by the sin of racism. And it'll also, it'll also provide an opportunity for you to create space where you are just one of them. No, I'm sorry. You are, where you can, by doing that, you communicate, we're in this together. Because one of the things that happened when the church segregated is that we looked at each other as us versus them. And so when we go out of our way to share our, our, our broken hearts over this issue, then it creates an opportunity for us to be one. So that's what I suggest for our, my white brothers and sisters in Christ. And for my African-American brothers 
and sisters in Christ. I say, because Jesus once and for all justly paid all racial sins, you can look at the cross and the magnitude of what Jesus suffered and then forgive as Christ forgave us and take a step of grace to be free from the past. And I'm not saying this is easy to do. There's a lot of painful history that is still affecting many, if not the majority of those in the African-American community. So I'm not saying this is an easy step. What I'm saying is that this is a biblical step that Jesus calls us to take to forgive as Christ forgave us. And what I'm saying is, yes, share your pain. Share how it, it grieves you. Share how it is still difficult for you. But you can grieve with hope in the body of Christ. And I say, you can go ahead and embrace our white brothers and sisters in Christ because they need healing too. And so this is how I suggest that we begin the process of reconciliation as Christians divided by race. Not an easy thing. And certainly Satan does not want us to confess and forgive and reconcile. He's kept us divided for centuries. But I say, let's take these steps in view of the cross. And by God's grace and power, we can. Amen? Amen. Lastly, why are Christians metaphorically called slaves of Christ? It is because living a Christian life is a life of being devoted to loving Christ and serving others. Loving Christ, serving others. It is a metaphor for total devotion to Christ as we love Christ and serve others. Let's remember now that Jesus removed the curse of slavery and blessed serving others as true greatness. In Christ, it is a slavery that does not abuse us, but rather is a slavery that exalts us because it unites us into the greatness of Christ. What Satan meant for evil, to bring ruin, pain, and shame, Jesus redeemed it for good in order to bring love and maturity and greatness. So how do you know if you're a loving person? How do you know if you are maturing in Christ? How do you know if you're living for true greatness? More and more, every day, you're living to serve others. Less of yourself, more loving others. Okay? And one of the things that we see in the, in the New Testament, especially 
with the apostles and all the Christians is that because Jesus became the slave to concretely show the true, true greatness of this idea of loving servanthood, referring to themselves as slave of Christ became an exquisite honor in the first century. Okay, and we, we'll, just, we'll just look at Paul, and then I'll illustrate what it means. Philippians 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Uh, Paul says it, Peter says it, uh, he refers to Titus, Timothy, uh, Ananias, Sapphira, all referred to as slaves of Christ. Now, we remember Paul as being a strict Pharisee, meaning he was a theological conservative and an anti-Gentile nationalist who could care less about people who didn't look like him or who didn't share his values. But after he met Jesus, the suffering slave, he was changed forever. So this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 9. It says, For though I am... This is my translation. Okay? For, though I am free from, though, for though I am free from all, I have enslaved myself to all ethnic people groups that I might bring more nations to Christ. Not every translation captures that. But the point that he makes is that though he is free, he, he enslaved himself to serve those of all races and ethnicities so that more of them could come to know Christ. So for the sake of the gospel, Paul totally devotes himself to doing multi-ethnic discipleship, leadership, and church planting. And it meant a lot of suffering for him, and it will be for us too. Uh, let me just share a story that I heard yesterday. Uh, all this past week, I was in Charlotte for a conference. I attended the conference with my friend Lonnie, uh, whom you've met. And um, there was this couple um, that really stood out because they were, uh, they were all dressed up. Um, most people there at the conference were wearing sweats and, you know, jammies and whatnot. Um, but this couple, the husband wore a suit and a wife wore a dress. And um, I remember thinking, that's a good-looking couple. Um, and uh, as everyone was packing up and leaving, they approached me. Uh, and uh, they, they asked me, what is your name? And so I began to introduce myself. And they did too. They said, I am Tyr. This is my wife, Anju. And we're from Nepal. And I got so excited because I've never, and I told them, I've never met anyone from Nepal in person. You're the very first people from Nepal that I've ever met. And I said, did you know? The name Anju, which was the wife's name, the, Anju means uh, snacks for alcoholic drinks. And she said, I know because 
we have many missionary friends in Nepal. And then they began to share uh, some of their stories. Now, the husband, I found out, was a, a TV host who did a program that interviewed people. And he said that he had to sign a contract to make sure that uh, he didn't promote any religion on his show. But he said he intentionally brought Christians onto his show. Okay? And uh, this one time, he invited a Korean-American, uh, no, not Korean-American, Korean missionary serving in Nepal. Uh, he was a missionary doctor who had served there for 38 years, and he served in a poor rural neighborhood in Nepal. And he said this was before the days when, when um, they had more resources for health care. And he said they had absolutely nothing at the time. And he tells the story um, of this doctor. And one day, a couple came in to visit the doctor. And the wife, uh, she had a bloated belly, absolutely bloated. And so the doctor realized that he has to do surgery on the spot. So immediately, without any anesthesia, he begins the operation. And she loses a lot of blood. And so he, he turns to the husband, and he's looking for the husband, but he ran away because he didn't want to give blood to his wife. And he said he never came back. And so this doctor, he immediately turns to the nurse and says, can you check my blood type? And so she does. And as it turns out, it was a perfect match. And so the doctor, he gives her two pints of blood. And then he sews her up, and then he goes into a corner of the room. And then he prays. He says, God, if she dies, it's over for me. I, I would have to leave. I'm in big trouble. So he prays. And after 20 minutes, he gets up. He goes over there. He checks her. And she's recovering normally. And fear tells me that she is alive to this day. And so during the interview, he asks the doctor, why, why in the world would you give blood to a stranger? Give your blood to a stranger when her own husband ran away. And the doctor replied, because Jesus gave me his blood to save my life. I gladly gave my blood to save hers. And I was blown away by the story. What I'm not saying is that you go to move to Nepal and give two pints of blood to every person you meet. Okay? That would be creepy. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is because Jesus become a slave to us, to love us and to serve us, would you be able to give a cup of cold water to a neighbor in need? Because Jesus came to serve us, would you cross the street 
and say hello to your neighbors who may not look like you? Would you be able to send a note of encouragement, a phone call, a text to encourage somebody that's discouraged, give them the comfort that you have received from Christ when he served you? The point is, Jesus calls us his slaves so that we can concretely share his love by serving others. Amen? And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, and I'm not saying that we will do it perfectly. In fact, we will fail. We will struggle. And then eventually, (laughs) by God's grace, we will finish the race and die. And then when, but when we see Jesus face to face, do you know what he will say to us? He will say, well done, my good and faithful slave, which is literally what he says. Well done, my good and faithful slave. Now, how in the world is that possible? Why would he say, well done, my good and faithful slave? Because when he sees us, first thing he will do is wipe away our tears because he knows this is a tough, difficult life. And then he's going to take off his robe of perfect love and servanthood and wrap it around us. And that's all he will see. Well done, my good and faithful slave. So with that in mind, we can go love people serve people, and be devoted to making disciples of people of every ethnicity and race so that we can be the church that he has called us to be, united, loving each other, so that the world will know that we are his disciples. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we... We ask that you forgive us. Even as Daniel prayed when he was in exile. Forgive us for our sins which we have committed in rebellion against you. You have called us to love one another and serve each other. But we confess that we have not done that well. In fact, History reminds us that we've done the complete opposite. But Lord, you remind us that if your people humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, you will heal our land. So I pray that you would help us as a church to be a place where we are honest about what happened, that we're able to confess, we're able to forgive, that we take steps of, of reconciliation and learn what it means to love each other with all of the disparities that we have. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who became a slave to free us from sin, guilt, and shame. We pray that you would help us to grow as your servants so that those who are hungry and thirsty for love 
would be able to experience that as we go as your witnesses, as your servants in this world, in our neighborhoods. Help us, we pray. We need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.